I'm having thoughts of suicide. And it occurred to me that if I stayed married, stayed in insurance, and didn't pursue comedy, sooner rather than later, I was going to kill myself, which was amazingly empowering because the second thought I had was, wait a minute, I could divorce my wife, quit my job. I could pursue comedy, which I think will work out. But if it doesn't and I fail, hell, I can still kill myself. Because I, I made an example. I gave an example. Let's say I had a twin brother who was neuronormal, neurotypical. Same situation, married, miserable, working, miserable, not pursuing comedy, miserable. He would say to himself, well, I can divorce my wife. I quit my job. If it works out great, if it doesn't, oh, dear Lord, I would lose everything. That's where I think it breaks down, I believe, for normal people because they choose. And I, I think probably sometimes wisely, they choose the devil they know, you know, rather than the devil they don't. In my case, if I stayed put, I think I used the uh, metaphor, I'm standing on the edge of a, I guess a simile, standing on the edge of a cliff, looking down at a lake, maybe 10 stories below deep, deep enough, you know, that if you jumped, you have a chance to survive. Uh, coming up behind me is a raging brush fire. So if I stay where I am, like staying in the marriage and selling insurance, I'm gonna die. So why not roll the dice and jump? You may die and fall may kill you. Then again, you may hit just right and and swim away. So uh, for me, there really wasn't a choice. I feel I feel for normal people because they have to make that choice and live with it. And Brian, I didn't have a choice. And if it failed, I just died with it. I was, you know, I was, I was dead either one. That's Frank King, and I'm Brian Felchuk. The Do A Day Podcast. Will you hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned? I'm your host, Brian Falchuk. I know because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do A Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Day doers, how's everybody doing today? I have a guest on today who I heard speak in person. Uh, I was doing my second TED Talk, and the guy who came on after me uh, billed himself as the mental health comedian or the suicidal comedian. Uh... And I was like, well, what, what is that? What is a mental health comedian? And I heard his talk and it, um, it touched me really, really deeply. It got me thinking a lot. And I've actually, I've mentioned him on a ton of episodes now and to lots of people because of just how deeply his message affected me. So I'm so glad to finally get this episode recorded and, and brought out to all of you. This is Frank King. Frank he goes by the mental health comedian. He is a suicide prevention public speaker and trainer. He's incredibly focused on that space. And the reason is because he's had a lifelong battle with depression. That wasn't just depression. It was depression with what he uh, shared with the audience at that TED Talk is chronic suicidality, meaning he's basically always looking at suicide as an option, as something to consider, something he's strongly thinking about. And the way he put it is... Uh, it's not just a phrase. It's not just something catchy. It's not just something uh, maybe dramatic or emotional. He said, you know, I, I'm serious enough about it that I know what my gun tastes like. And when you put it like that, you know, that's uh, oh, that's really serious. Um, interestingly, Frank was not always a comedian. He started his work in insurance, uh, which has nothing to do with why he's on the show because people who don't know, that's my background too. Um but he wanted to pursue comedy, and uh, he took the plunge, and we talk about that. But he had a 20-year career as a writer for The Tonight Show, 
Um, and he's done comedy in a lot of different settings, not just stand-up, but in corporate settings. He does a lot of keynote talks and, and uh, public speaking events. But his attention is really on ending the stigma around mental health and suicide. And he is, I mean, he is all in on trying to end that stigma and get to a place of suicide prevention, support. and Because if we don't have the stigma, then it's easier to support people and help them through and get to a better place. I want to jump right into this because Frank, Frank just, it will affect you. Um, there was some weird background sound that kept coming through in the recording. I don't know what it is. Some digital Skypiness to the whole thing. Uh, so apologies for that. But uh, otherwise, it's, uh, it's pretty powerful stuff. So let's jump into the episode with Frank King. Frank King, thanks so much for joining me in today. I had no choice. Part of a plea bargain. Yeah, that's that's probably a pretty accurate <laughs> statement. Um, I will I will definitely give ample warning to people in the intro that they should be prepared for hilarity and slight offense every now and then. Maybe, maybe that's a good way to. Yeah, I mean my 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 comedy is always very clean because the dirty little secret about clean comedy is it pays so much better. Mm. So uh, they will not be offended by the language or the subject matter. They may be offended at my um, devil may care attitude. That's a possibility. But that's a big part of who you are. That's a good thing. I'm Um, 61. I don't care. That's right. You, you, I, I have to say like, obviously I gave you a bit of this in person, but when you got on stage, I wasn't, I mean, I, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't really have any expectations. I just sat in the audience and listened. Um, but I got to tell you, Frank, it's been a month now, just about since uh, since we did that TEDx together. I'm still like I'm still processing your talk. It's still oh. very much talk. And I'm not just saying that because you're a guest right now, but genuinely, um, there's almost not been a day that I haven't told someone about it. Oh, and just the way thank it, you. It's it struck me. So yeah, I'm I'm really excited to do this and uh get this message out to more people because it uh, you struck a nerve with me man in a pretty serious way (laughs) yeah that's what you said after the dude you have no idea you said oh okay now i think unfortunately because you had to listen to me for a couple hours you probably have an idea yeah uh, it's uh it's some profound stuff so what tell people uh just in a you know brief overview like what what what's your gig right now what's what are you doing these days well the elephant in the room brian is always a uh, comedian talking about depression and suicide. How does that look? And I usually open my keynotes with that because that's what everybody is thinking or almost everybody. Um, I, I speak on suicide prevention and depression and suicide, signs, symptoms, and solutions, uh, associations, corporations, colleges. Uh, I've got a couple of colleges lined up in um, September. And what qualifies me is I believe a comedian's a good person, good choice of person to speak on, on mental health, mental illness, because a comedian's job, Brian, has been since the time of the Middle Ages in the court jester to speak truth to power. And on behalf of the powerless, I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those sometimes powerless in its grip. I believe where there's laughter, there's life, where there's humor, there's hope, nobody dies laughing. And, oh, and I have a family history. It's uh, depression, suicide running my family. It's called uh, generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I, at the ripe old age of four, found her. And I myself came very close to dying by suicide in um, April of 2010. Occasionally somebody who doubts that 
people ask me, yeah, how close did you come? Well, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Yeah. Which usually takes them back a step. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone in the audience was kind of like, yeah, you know, we, we get it. But then you said that and they were kind of like, no, he's not just saying that to, to get a rise out of people. He's not just saying that to be like, you know, I, I struggle too. You literally, you mean that very literally. So oh yeah. It's, it's a, uh, it's a very real thing in your, in your case. Yeah. And I do it. I don't do it to shock the normal people or neuro normal people, but it does. I do it mostly for the people who are struggling because it, it, it gives me sort of instant credibility with them. They're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. A, yeah. Okay. He gets it. I think everyone was left with a little taste in their mouth. Like that yeah, and, metallic. and somebody said, to me, yeah, a little metallic taste. Yeah, uh, if I get really graphic, I tell people I can tell you what the difference in taste is between chrome and blue steel. Um, and somebody said to me after I did my, my talk and we took a break, are you leaving? I said, I can't leave. I said, just watch what happens when we go to break. And each break, two or three people came up and each one had a story. There was a young woman whose dad had died of suicide on July 12 and she herself was living with depression. There's a woman who said to me, you know, I, my son, I just, he's, got, he's got these issues and I just keep picturing coming home and finding feet dangling in midair. Yeah. These are people I just met. And um, two women, a mom and daughter, were vacationing in Pensacola. They looked up on Google what to do in Pensacola. And the TED Talk popped up. And they saw that someone was going to speak on, you know, the, the suicide, the mental health committee was going to be talking about suicide. She had taken her brother in because he was depressed and he'd lived there for about three months. Everybody thought he was getting better and he ended his life in her house. And so she came looking for answers of some sort. And I hope, hopefully I gave her some insight into the mindset of somebody who's rolling up to something like that. Yeah. It's, there's no question. It touches far more people then either I think people want to admit or then they're aware of and they may not realize just how many people out there have been affected by it or or themselves have been dealing with that urge that that or whether it's an urge or it's a that need that what's the word I'm looking for like that sense of I want to end this pain and maybe they yeah. don't quite understand how but that's the way that is manifesting for them yeah, I, I think what's happening, Brian, in my case is that people, if they've lost a loved one to suicide, I've gone someplace, their loved one went, but I, I came back. I leaned over. I mean, I got close, but I came back and they want to know oftentimes what is, uh, you know, explain to me how you get there to that spot. So I do the best I can. Yeah. When I, I want to know how you get back to this spot. You know, it's not just how, obviously they, they want the connection to understand what someone else that they've lost has gone through, maybe to, to process it or to help yeah. them understand how to pull someone back. But for me, it's the, and the, this is the reason why I want to have you on is one of the ways that you, you, you know, you help people back from that point. So it's not a, let me understand after the fact so I can process it better, but so that I don't have something to process because I help them stay here. Well, and it, I, there's a, uh, there's a reason I'm still here, and it's it's a little odd. The I don't know if you and I talked about this, but I had a million dollar life insurance policy. Yeah, you brought this up on stage. Yeah, and yeah. I and um, in that particular policy and many policies, there's a two year what they call suicide policy. You get off in the first 24 months, it pays nothing. Actually, they return the premiums. Um, 
after 24 months, they pay in full. And not all contracts are written like that. Some don't, some don't allow suicide at all. But in my particular case, so I call my insurance agent and ask him, you know, how long I'd had the policy. And he said 22 months. And then he said, oh, dear God, don't do it. Because he'd had that conversation before and lost some clients that way because they had already they they'd paid their 24 months and they were on yeah. their way out. So I I refused. People think that the rational brain has fled when you are that close to suicide. But I believe that, you know, part of the rational, the rational part of your brain was my brain, at least, was still operating. And it refused to let me leave my wife not only heartbroken, but destitute. I wouldn't couldn't leave her without resources. So I just I I just, you know. I couldn't kill myself. I had to wait two months, uh, hoping that it, things would get better. And, you know, that unfortunately they did. Bankruptcy went through, phone call stopped. My depression lifted a little. But I figured, you know, at the end of two months, if it isn't any better, well, you know, it's, it's just, <laughs> I can still kill myself. So, uh, fortunately, spoiler alert, I didn't. Yeah. And, and and it gave me the opportunity, by the way. I was talking to a would-be speaker this morning, a guy who asked me to help him with his speaking career. And he said to me, you know, I, I always wanted to speak. He wants to be an inspirational speaker. I just – because I want to make a difference. And I said, well, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it because I did stand-up comedy until I was 52 and came close to ending my life. And that's when I realized what I wanted to do with my life and how I could make a difference. And so that's – I think the reason I, one of the reasons I stuck around besides the life insurance was to share my story with people and yeah and let them let them share their story and 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 knowledge share my knowledge you know to cuz normal people don't really oftentimes they want to help but they really have no no concept of how they can possibly yeah help. and it, so I wonder if it's hard for them to do it no matter how skilled or or well-intentioned they are if they haven't been in that place cuz there's something about that level of understanding that maybe if you're in that dark place, you need someone who really gets it like that. You don't have to <laughs> yeah, explain that's, it. <laughs> yes. That's uh, I've often told people, if you're in a crisis, call the phone number yeah. or text. And then if you're not, if you're just struggling, call somebody who's crazy because they're less likely to judge and they're less likely to tell you what you should be doing. And if you're normal and you've got a friend, let's say, or a loved one who's depressed and you want to, you know, you want to talk to them about it. Two questions. One, do you want my perspective? Or two, do you want me to just listen mm. without comment? Just listen. No should. You should be doing this and you should be doing that. Just listen. Because oftentimes I just want somebody to, as a friend of mine says, uh, co-sign my BS. Just just listen to me. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, um, and I was, I did a college, um, Lynchburg College, and a young woman came up afterwards my suicide prevention keynote and she goes can i give you a hug and i'm thinking oh dear lord everybody everybody in the room's got a cell phone and it's got camera and video and i'm 61 and she's probably 21 and you know <laughs> they start rolling and she's hugging me you know yeah. uh professional speaker you know molest co-ed um so i gave her kind of a brotherly hug and i said are you a hugger she goes no not normally but she said i've been in therapy for six months and the young woman was treating me is extremely talented. She knows her stuff. She's got you know, degrees from wherever. But he, she said she just doesn't have any concept. And she goes, I'm listening to you. And I got to tell you, listening to you for 45 minutes has done more for me than six months of therapy because you were, you were, all of a sudden you're inside my head. You're feeling and seeing and, and sensing the things that I am going through. Yeah. So. Frank, there's, there's something in particular that the thing I've been talking to people about um, has been 
when you talked about your car breaking down. So I want you to oh, tell yeah. that story. And, and for me, it was it was this wake up moment of, no, hang on. It's not all doom and gloom. Actually, it's kind of empowering. But how do you harness that without the risk of killing yourself? Oh, so, yeah. So take us through that, because that story, like that, I just I got it all of a sudden. I was like, oh, wait, yeah, this is there are other ways to look at this. Oh, so you're talking about the chronic suicidality that I yes. have? Yeah. And and, yeah. That, and that seems to have played out, you know, with the career switch from insurance. Oh, and, God. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Bring, bring us you to that. Start with, yeah, yeah. You only start with the career. Um, the uh, the uh, name of the TEDx talk is um, Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. And I don't recommend that, by the way, as, as a part of anybody's plan for success. It just happens to be, you know, my plan, my life. Yeah. Uh, what happened was, as you know, Brian, I was married and the young, a wonderful young woman, my high school sweetheart, but I was miserable. We didn't belong together. I was selling insurance, which was her idea of what I should be doing. And I was miserable and I was not going to the comedy store because there's one right there in town uh, in San Diego. There's a branch of the comedy store to do open mic night, which I knew I sh should be doing. So I'm, I'm having thoughts of suicide. And it occurred to me. But if I stayed married, stayed in insurance, and didn't pursue comedy, sooner rather than later, I was going to kill myself, which was amazingly empowering because the second thought I had was, wait a minute, I could divorce my wife, quit my job. I could pursue comedy, which I think will work out. But if it doesn't and I fail, hell, I can still kill myself. So because <laughs> I, I made example, I gave an example. Let's say I had a twin brother who is neuronormal, neurotypical. Same situation, married, miserable, working, miserable, not pursuing comedy, miserable. He would say to himself, well, I can divorce my wife. I quit my job. If it works out great, if it doesn't, oh, dear Lord, I would lose everything. Yeah, and that's all he'd focus that's where on. I think, yeah, and that's where it breaks down, I believe, for normal people because they choose, and I, I think probably sometimes wisely, they choose the devil they know, you know, rather than the devil they don't. In my case... If I stayed put, I think I used the uh, metaphor, I'm standing on the edge of a, I guess it's a simile, standing on the edge of a cliff, looking down at a lake, maybe 10 stories below deep, deep enough, you know, that if you jumped, you have a chance to survive. Uh, coming up behind me is a raging brush fire. So if I stay where I am, like staying in the marriage and selling insurance, I'm going to die. So why not roll the dice and jump? You may die and fall may kill you. Then again, you may hit just right and and swim away. So uh, for me, there really wasn't a choice. I feel, I feel for normal people because they have to make that choice and live with it. And Brian, I didn't have a choice. And if it failed, I just died with it. I was, you know, I was, I was yeah. dead either way. So that was a, and it's, it's part of, um, I think my, what I have is called chronic suicidality. It's relatively rare. It means that for me and people who are wired as I am, the option of suicide is always on the menu. And I, when I say that, I mean for, you know, things, large problems, large and small. I, the example I gave was a couple of years ago, my car broke down and I literally had three thoughts unbidden. One, I could get it fixed. Two, I could buy a new one. Or three, I could just kill myself. Yeah. And the, my brain just tosses up all the time as C. You know, well, well, and, or you could just kill yourself. And the, the, the um, satisfying thing about giving voice to that, I, mentioned this, I believe, in my talk, is a young woman came up to me after a college presentation, told me she really liked my, my uh, keynote, but she said, yeah, I got to tell you, you made me weep. I had to make you weep. She goes, well, when you said, you know, you get your car fixed, get a new one, or you could just kill yourself, she goes, I've been having thoughts like that my entire life. Yeah. She goes, I thought it, it was just me. I'm some kind of freak. 
didn't know there's a name for it. And when I heard you say that, she goes, I realized in that moment, oh my God, I am not alone. And I wept. Yeah. So there's that's there's the, that's power a, in that from a healing standpoint, just knowing that you aren't alone, that you're not, you're not a freak. You're not a, you know, no, no. other people. And then she came up afterwards, which I didn't tell you guys she came up afterwards. And she goes, I was hoping I'd grow out of it. And I said, I'm 61. If I'm going to grow out of it, I better get started. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that, I mean, so, you had people kind of laugh in the audience when you say that. And I think they laugh and are like, Oh, you know, kind of like, Haha, Oh, wait a second. You know, yeah. that, cause it, it hit them like, yeah, it's kind of a funny thing. But it's completely not because you're not just saying it. And what I latched on to is how freeing it can be. And that like, you know, how do you how do you harness that kind of energy without the risk of actually doing it? Because I I do think, you know, when you talked about this, uh, you know, twin brother kind of thing, that's how most people are. That's how most people get trapped in these miserable. Like I always call it being an employee of your life where you just kind of like well, I got to keep doing the day in, day out because I have to. It's all obligation-based and the devil you know, as you say, um, because they don't see any other option. Whereas if you could just kill yourself either way, then who cares? I might as well try to change the situation because there's really no risk anymore. Yeah, you you get out of the situation you're in to end the pain. And if it doesn't work out well, you end the pain by killing yourself right and for you um, you saw it as like it's going to happen either way so i might as well try to end the pain yeah and i there aren't uh, as i mentioned there are a number of entrepreneurs i believe who have had the same i've met entrepreneurs who had the same basic thought process they had a life they were living they were really unhappy you know they were the employee in their life uh and fulfilling their obligations and they had this dream and they just they were miserable and they realized if you know if i, if I don't pursue my dream. I'm going to kill myself. Wait a minute. <laughs> uh, I could, you know, get divorced, quit my job, pursue my dream. If it works out great. If not, then I can still kill myself. Yeah. I think the, um, the power for me, uh, talking, uh, talking about it out loud, uh, to individuals or to groups is very therapeutic for me. I, every now and then I'll just off the cuff. I was in Sacramento doing a suicide prevention training and I called Uber and the guy, Rolls up and I get in the car and he goes, how you doing? I thought, what the hell? I said, I'm uh, depressed and suicidal. And he goes, uh, hey, you know, um, what do you say to something like that? Yeah. And I said, well, do you really want to know what you say? And he goes, yeah. I go, what you say is, do you have a plan? And then before <laughs> I could say anything goes, and does it involve a car? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, man. I know comedians who don't think that fast. Yeah. So, yeah, just so there's some there's power in just giving voice to it. I don't know. Yeah. I guess I, but what I don't know, Brian, is the answer to your question. If you're normal and you're in that situation and you're miserable and you know, you know, you're not pursuing your dream, but you got a wife and you got a good job and you got kids and responsibilities, how do you, you know, when does the pain get so bad? Yeah. In that life. It does the pain get so bad, or do you just march through it? I think, Brian, this is just, I suspect, with entrepreneurs, that especially the ones who I believe are depressed and suicidal to begin with, and that's why they're entrepreneurs, they just roll the dice. Yeah. Uh, they see the world as it could be, whereas a lot of people 
don't have that sort of vision. They, they, they're in that marriage and that job and those obligations, and they just don't see that it could ever change, ever be any different. I think the blessing curse of folks who have that vision is that you can see over the horizon and you realize, oh man, I, I, I could do this. Yeah. So I, I, I'm curious about how risk averse you are. Like, is there, I'm wondering if there's a connection here. Like, do you, do you find yourself to be a particularly risk taking kind of guy? Like, is it freeing in that sense? Uh, it was until the recession. Um, now, you know, we were, we lost everything in the recession and it wasn't because I was doing Coke and buying sea dues. Um, we were just overextended, had a lot of rental property and some negative cash flow, and my income dropped off 80% overnight. We just couldn't pay the bills. Yeah. So I'm far less, I'm far more risk averse financially now. However, um, in my daydreams, and people with depression oftentimes um, have, I, I believe, people I've talked to have amazing, you know, day uh, daydreams. I've got, I've got blocking and lighting and dialogue and sound, you know, sound bites and. And um, in my daydream, I'm in a 76 station where I buy my gas. Some guy comes middle of the night on my way to the airport. Some guy comes with a gun, you know, puts it to my head and goes, you know, give me your money or I'll kill you. Eh, go ahead and pull the trigger. Yeah. <laughs> so, I said, you know, I'm crazy. And he goes, you're crazy. And I go, everybody knows that. But thanks for noticing. Um, yeah, I just think that that in that sense, um, I'm not really worried about somebody, you know, pulling out a gun and opening fire and I'm, you know, that, 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 in that way, I, I don't take chances. I don't ride a motorcycle. I, I wouldn't, you know, skydive. I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't reckless. Part, yeah. Reckless behavior, which yeah. by the way is often a sign of somebody um, who's rolling up on suicide. They, they are reckless in their behavior, whether it's unprotected sex or, or driving too fast or, you know, yeah. So, you know, in terms of, like I said, I'm far, far less, I'm far more risk averse, especially because I'm married and my lovely wife is, you know, after losing everything, she is very, you know, I mean, she had, it, it crushed her. I think, which is, if I'd been single, Brian, I think I could have, I could have gotten through it without one day in my life, but her pain became my pain and I had been responsible for the finances mm-hmm. and granted there are other evil players in this drama, uh, Lehman Brothers, you know, yeah. bank, banking regulators, the SEC, everybody who you know didn't see the big short, yeah, coming. Um, but yeah, but I was I took personal responsibility for it. I, it was so interesting though that you said if you were single, you could have gotten through it. I thought you were about to say if I was single, I would have just killed myself. Like I was no, thinking, I, she, ca- you know, wanting to be there for her, not wanting, you know, that that uh, kept you around. But it's interesting you saw it the other way. Yeah, if I'd been single, I could have, you know, ridden out the, I mean, it's, yeah, I don't, I don't think, it was her pain and her her angst, her suffering that was killing me. I mean, that, that, because, you know, single, it's just you, okay, yeah, take everything, that's fine. You know, I'll go live with a friend in, in, <laughs> in Raleigh, my old hometown, and I'll rebuild. Yeah, but, it's a different you know, story had, when there's someone else. Yeah, and we had, we had horses we rescued, and a lovely farm, and... Yeah, it's uh, and the good news is it's one of, bankruptcy is one of those things that either blows a marriage to pieces or strengthens a marriage. Mm. And she and I we stuck it out, uh, and um, I think we're both more empathetic for it. Um, I think the marriage is better for it. The other upside of bankruptcy is you drill down 
to what it is you need versus what you want. Mm. You know, it's very, there's a very short list of, of needs. Yeah. Um, we had, we fortunately were able to protect a little house. We homesteaded a little house that she grew up in. So we had a place to go and we took all our animals with us, uh, three dogs and a bunch of cats and we had our clothes and two cars and, you know, so that was really all we needed. To, uh, we realized. So we try to live relatively small and simple since yeah. then. We do get awfully clouded with that. And I think that's a big piece of, I mean, going back to that feeling of, you know, my life's miserable and I, I can't, I can't change it. Cause what if everything goes wrong is you, you probably created, um, too much dependence on the thing that's making you miserable, especially, you know, on the career side or, you know, getting divorced and losing it all, or how do you, re- you know, all those questions, it's all around stuff. Yes. And losing your stuff, or if you're getting divorced, losing half your stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, it's again with bankruptcy when they, you know, they took everything uh, except this little house we're in and, um, we're still in a little house and, and we couldn't, um, Wendy's friend, uh, older friend who lives here, elderly woman, she bought us a subscription to the local paper because we couldn't afford it. And when I went to the, to the box and that first morning I pulled out the local paper, I wept because that was such a kindness, you mm. know, to, to do that for us. Cause she knew we couldn't, we couldn't, if we didn't have money for a subscription to the paper. So. Yeah. So little things. Little yeah. The little kindnesses. Joy. Yeah. A uh, couple of comics, friends of mine offered help. Um, one I, who I expected to, and one who came out of the blue. Um, the guy would not have suspected would even offer. And, uh, so you find out, you know, the, um, I'm sure the other ones cared. And if I'd asked, they probably would have loaned me some money or whatever, but two guys just called me up out of the blue and, and, you know, and offered some money. One, one case I took some because we need to make a house payment. The other one, I said, look, I'll give you a call back if it gets really bad. Yeah. But just knowing that it, it has a really big impact when unsolicited someone just cares or sends you a message. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody just yeah, out of the blue. Um, and the, well, the guy who actually gave me some money, he's amazingly tight. So it money. really said something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cause his dad was that way. His dad, uh, when I lived in Raleigh, we, he, we both lived near Raleigh and some doctor's son was kidnapped and they won a hundred thousand dollars back in the sixties. And fortunately the young man was returned safe and sound, but my friend's father sat, three kids himself his brother and his sister down on the couch he said look if you get kidnapped i'm not paying a ransom you have to chew through the duct tape <laughs> and escape yeah because you know we made we made the three of you we'll just make another one oh, that's man. how tight he was yeah um let's hope a he was kidding and b the kids never had to find out one way or the other yeah. No, but his son, my friend is, a, and when he gave me, I think he gave me 500 bucks, 600 bucks for him. That was like $6,000. I mean, and, yeah. and, you know, it was a, huge for him to do that. Uh, so yes, yeah, you know, to figure, find out who you can depend, who, who your, who your friends are and who's going to reach out. It's, so. it's got to be a bit that way when people reach out to you about your message that, you know, to find out that. You, it's not because with you, it's not just that like you've touched them or that it resonated. It's potentially that you just saved their life. Yeah, I think in some cases, like the young woman who thought she was alone with yeah. chronic suicidality, it's possible that we changed the path 
she was on, you know, with her life. I don't, you know, perhaps she would have gotten to the point where she just couldn't handle it anymore. And, and yeah. I mean, I'm hoping Brian, that I'm, that I'm changing lives in that, in that way. Yeah. Well, having but, been in the audience, I, I find it hard to believe that even if it's just nudging a ball that's rolling downhill in a slightly different trajectory, that may be all it takes. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's, um, it's generally with, um, it's like a plane crash. There's never usually, usually there's never one thing that, that uh, causes a plane crash. They call it a cascade. Yes. Something happens and then something else follows and then something else follows that. And if you interrupt the cascade, then you can save the aircraft. And that's kind of how I feel. If you can just interrupt that slide somehow or other, hit the pause button, then maybe you can, uh, you know, and, and I get, I get phone calls all the time, texts, emails. I've got a friend, my, my college roommate called me. I think he's going to kill himself. So I hope, you know, try to steer people to resources. And so Frank, how did you, how did you take that gun out of your mouth and how have you kept yourself from going back to, being that close to the line? That's a good question. <laughs> so, that, that's the well, piece yeah. that, you know, for, for that, that's kind of the takeaway is there's one side that's like, look, I hear you. I'm in the same place. I've, I've been there. You know, I'm a survivor of this too. You're not alone. And then what, what do we do about it? And you talk about the, you know, the, the helplines talking to someone, all those kinds of things. What did you specifically do to, nudge your ball in the, in the other direction? Oh, I think I, I like to think of it as a holistic approach not simply just a, I mean, some people, some therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists take a strictly pharma, pharmacological approach. Uh, my self-care plan is a little broader. I meditate twice a day for 30 minutes. It's a lovely, it's a little, it's a little MP3 called the cat napper. It's a guided meditation. Try to do it twice a day. Um, I do medication. Um, finally went to my doctor. I was taking a supplement called Sammy, S-A-M-E. You can buy it at Costco. And yeah. it was good for a long time for me to take the edge off, but I hit 60 and I thought, what the heck? So I went to the, my doctor and, and um, he said, well, look, we'll try you on uh, well, Wellbutrin. And I'm not advertising Wellbutrin, but it just happens to work well for me. My wife noticed after two weeks, the difference. And I noticed after three, and that's very common in that your family and friends will notice first. Yeah. Cause we think, we think we're covering it up really well, Yeah. but they, they can tell the difference. And then it, when I hit three weeks, my first thought was, um, why did I wait so long to do sure. this? It would have been a lot easier. Uh, so yeah, I guess the answer to the question is really with time and treatment, things can and will get better. And then Brian, a couple of days later, I had a thought unbidden, just bubbled up out of nowhere that I haven't had since I was in high school, which was, I like my life. I thought, damn, where'd that come from? That's a really different thought. Yeah, it just yeah. came out of nowhere. And I think that's the Wellbutrin for me. And it's, you know, not every psychotropic works for everybody. You need to, you know, you need to get a good prescriber and, and, and work on finding the one that matches your metabolism. But so I would say um, a holistic approach for me, it's medication, meditation, uh, it's um, diet and exercise. Um, I'm an exercise freak. I was just gonna. Um, I was gonna ask you about that. We gotta hit on what you've got coming up, but we can get there. Yeah, I got a I got a bodybuilding contest October 20th here in town, and when you hit 60, I think you're in the masters class. Mm -hmm. So you're not competing with 20 year olds. And I've dropped 27 and a half pounds. Um, I try to work out hour and a half, two hours every day. 
you know, first the elliptical for aerobics and then um, stretching yeah. and then uh, weight work. Um, and I went to my first posing class on Saturday. Wow. Yeah, it took a lot of, I mean, it took, I, I, I don't usually get rattled, I don't get nervous. I mean, I opened up for Randy Travis twice, a Friday and a Saturday at an amphitheater in Michigan in front of 5,000 people each night. And never even missed a beat. Never didn't bother me a bit. But take it off my shirt in the gym, stand there and flexing in front of strangers. <laughs> yeah. Were, were you oiled yeah. up or anything like that or bronzed up or anything? Or it doesn't go that no. far yet? Not yet. I will do. I will shave my body or use a depilatory to take all the hair off. And I will get the, um, you know, the um, spray tan mm-hmm. when time comes. And But the guy, the young man... Aaron's his name. He's, he just turned pro bodybuilding. He was really, he was really nice. I mean, he could have made me feel awful. Yeah. Cause you know, I mean, I, I look good for a 61 year old, but you know, it's, I still, I'm, I, you know, what I thought about this morning, Brian was, uh, uh, I'm going to think about it sort of like when I started comedy, this first contest is my first amateur night. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to, it's not going to be perfect. I'm probably, I'm not going to place chances are, unless there's only three people in my category <laughs> and I could third, I got third. Was there, there a fourth? Go. I got third. Let's see. Yeah, focus uh, on the issues. Yeah. So, uh, just, just, you know, just break the ice and get in. Um, you know, I plan to do this the rest of my life. So I thought, you know, I'll just think of like amateur night. I'll, I'll do okay. I'll get up there. I'll get it behind me. I know I can, that way I know I can do it, not die. And so, uh, but that's part of that exercise. Um, the I think what it does for me is, besides I'm terribly vain, is it's <laughs> yeah, it's I've been that way all my I, life. It's go ahead. No, I just I, I'm surprised to hear that. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought so. Oh man, I am terribly vain, and uh, and it's it's one of those things you know you can you you could uh, in in a world where you have there are very few things you can control. I can, you know, I can work on my diet and I can go to the gym. These are things I can, and it's, it's outside of my career speaking. It's completely outside. So I can, I can have accomplishments in an entirely different arena. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if I go to a, do a speech and it happens and I get, you know, I just, things just go horribly wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like you have to slink out. Well, you know, the next morning I'm in the gym and the, you know, the 20 pound dumbbell still weighs 20 pounds. And the, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, um, a calming, steady influence in my life. And I can see the, I can see the, um, improvement, you know, every few days I'll notice another, this, or, you know, a little muscle sticking out a little more yeah. or, wow, I've never seen cuts in my legs like that. That's great. So it's, yes, yeah, it gives me a, to take focus off my speaking and, and that sort of thing. And, and let me f- achieve in other areas so um, so yeah that's that's how i've survived plus speaking out loud about it was amazingly therapeutic i had no idea how therapeutic it would be to talk about it out loud to talk about the bodybuilding no to talk about the mental illness oh okay yeah that that's sort of thinking at first but i didn't know if you're still in the bodybuilding part all right yeah well it, it's still you know, it's empowering to go I'm, I, I usually tell people listen you're gonna laugh when i tell you this but I'm doing a build bodybuilding contest on October 20th, and they always laugh. Uh, <laughs> well, you told me I would laugh, and I wasn't sure if you were being serious or not. And I don't mind because I don't look. I'm very. I'm an ectomorph. I'm very slightly built. Yeah. 
which will serve me well in that arena because you know I I, uh, I can I can't get I'm never going to be big, but I can be well defined and proportioned and yeah, you know, so forth. That's what people so, don't understand. It's not just about getting gigantic. No. And I learned on Saturday, Brian. It's not just about being big. And he goes, I've seen smaller competitors beat bigger competitors because the smaller competitor had a lot more personality on stage mm -hmm. and they obviously really worked on their posing and they nailed it. Yeah. They weren't as big as the other guy was, but they just, you know, the audience loved them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so I, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, if we go back to that moment where it was, you know, I can, if I, if I stay in insurance and this life that I'm living, I'm probably going to kill myself. If I leave and everything falls apart, I can still kill myself. But you did leave. You did pursue what you actually wanted to be doing. And in hindsight, you know, the, the, uh, the ups and downs financially, which is more about the economy and real estate probably than stand-up comedy. Oh, but yeah. You have had actually a lot of success on the comedy front. You've had success as a speaker. Do you, do you ever stop to reflect about, I mean, I guess you have, if you titled your TED Talk, The Secret to Your Success, but <laughs> it, it did all work out. Yeah. And when things went south, because I said I would, I would do it until, you know, and, and if I failed, and essentially with the recession and my income dropping off 80%, I did, it did, I did fail. And I, I came to that juncture where I thought, well, you know, you know, my, I was like sitting in the emergency exit row on a plane. I know how I get out of this. Yeah. And I was on my way out the door. I was about to pull the door on the plane and realized, well, I can't do it for two months. Right. So okay. I had that conversation with myself. Okay, look, you got you to wait two months. At the end of two months, maybe better, may not. But at the end of two months, for sure, two months in a day, I would be very careful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I call the agent and go, is it, is it good? Uh, the insurance in force? Uh, I knew it at the end of two months that the insurance would be available and I could again check out if that was what I wanted to do. So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a power in that as well, that we have a right to die or death with dignity in Oregon mm -hmm. and people who have serious physical illnesses and are winding down and know the day is coming and you know, they, they can buy the cocktail. Um, they can administer it to themselves, assuming the doctor is signed off and a psychiatrist is signed off, but they tend to, ironically, people like that tend to live longer and better, more, more, um, the quality of life is better for them knowing that they have the power to, to exit when they're ready. Interesting. Yeah. There was an athlete, an Olympic athlete, I think who had some illness that where it was going to be fatal, but it allowed her to continue to train and compete because she knew when time came and things got really bad when they got bad, she could, she could leave on her own terms. It's kind of like a, they did an experiment with um, painkillers. Somebody suggested, because um, with painkillers back in the day when my mom was dying, they would only give her some morphine-based whatever every three hours because it would kill her. <laughs> I said, she's dying. Why not get her out of pain? Yeah. But what they, somebody said, well, why don't we let the patient determine how much pain medicine they're going to get? And people are like, you can't let people do that. They'll go nuts. It's crazy. Well, they tried it, and it turned out, that people, when they had that button and they knew they could stop the pain, they tended to go longer between doses because they knew they had control. Interesting. Yeah, and they could, and they would, so they, they used less because they would hang on, knock, and they, I got yeah. about 10 minutes. So 
yeah, so it's, I think it's all about, for me, it was all about control. It was all about, you know, I want to, I, I think I told, I don't know if I told the story in my TED talk, but I had a friend who worked at a psychiatric facility. People who checked in all summer long, people who were either suicidal or had attempted suicide. And they asked them, because it's a medical facility, do you want to sign the DNR, the do not resuscitate? If you have a heart attack in here, do you want us to let you go? And not one person who was suicidal or had attempted suicide signed the DNR. They, if they had a heart attack, even though they wanted to die, they wanted to be brought back. And again, I think that goes back to control. They That's wanted so to, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, time. They it, want you, yeah. time plus. It's it's not their choice. Then it's something hitting them. Yeah, yeah. Now, when I I've had two open heart surgeries, two aortic valve replacements, oh. uh, double bypass, a massive heart attack, and and I have, I have three stents. Um, I can remember being rolled in down the corridor to the surgery on the second second heart valve replacement, which is going to be much more difficult than the first. And I'd been I've been told I had a ten percent chance I was going to die. There was I wouldn't come out. Ten percent, one in ten chance I wasn't coming out. So they're rolling me down, and I'm thinking about that. So they're rolling me down the corridor, and I'm, it, it brought sort of brought death and dying into into focus. It's one thing to have what they call suicidal ideation. This is how I would do it, you know. But it's another thing to be rolling down the hall to a room where a one in ten chance you're not yeah. coming out. Yeah. So that that's been that was a little thera- therapeutic. It made it very concrete. All of a sudden, it was. Uh, didn't I tell, you, did I tell you I had a heart attack a half mile up a, a logging trail? No. I didn't know you had a heart attack. Oh, yeah. Um, or two. You had uh, two. Uh, they were, when I did the second valve job, they replaced two arteries oh. or bypassed two arteries. Actually, they took them from my breast muscle, I think, and attached them. And what happened was both of them occluded on the same day. Wow. So I'm in the woods. I drive the dogs two miles from home. Get, we have these logging trails out here in Oregon and I'm walking with the dogs up the logging trail and I got about a half mile up there and I thought, Oh, Oh man. Oh, I had angina. And in the past with my valve jobs, my valve problems, if I stopped moving, it would stop hurting, but it did not stop hurting. I thought, mm-hmm. Oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. So now there's a misconception about depression in that people who have depression thoughts of suicide is 24, seven, 365. That's not necessarily the case, especially with good medication and therapy. So I was in a good place that day. But I, I since realized if I wanted to commit, I could have died by suicide and died in a very socially acceptable manner. Yeah. Because nobody would have known except the dogs that I sat down and waited on it. Yeah. And as the joke I tell in my act, which is absolutely true, I had my T-Mobile cell phone, so I didn't have service. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, they would probably find me go, oh, man, he had a heart attack. Oh, is that T-Mobile? Oh, yeah, wow. that explains it. Yeah, it's not suicide. Did. It's just bad reception. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I walked down the hill in pain. It was getting worse by the minute. I knew if I didn't get back to the car, I was dead. Yeah. And people always ask, what were you thinking? I mean, did you see a light? Did you hear your relative's voices, you know, from the great beyond? Were you thinking about your wife, your, your family? You know what I was thinking about, Brian? No clue. Two weeks from that day, I had my first TED Talk scheduled. <laughs> I'm walking down the hill thinking, oh, man, all the time and effort I put into that TED Talk, and I'm not going to get to deliver it. <laughs> Honest to God, that's what I was thinking going down the hill. Okay, I, I kind of get it. I yeah. Kinda, I kind of get it. I know. Um, that's a true story. 
Did you get to do the talk? More importantly yeah. than surviving. Let's, you know, let's oh, get yeah. to the chase. You got to do the talk still. Well, I got, I got in the car, I drove home, and I, I yelled at my wife. You drove in the midst of a heart attack. Yeah, I drove two miles home. Wow. And I get in the house, and my plan was to yell to my wife because I was afraid if I picked up the phone, dialed 911 myself, and then passed out, she comes out has no idea what's going on. Oh, good. Yeah. So I yelled, honey, I'm having a heart attack, dialed 911. I hear this. I'm in the bathroom. I got the fan on. I can't hear you. <laughs> I'm thinking, Brian, I walked a half mile and drove two, and I'm going to die in my hall. This is not good. Yeah. She opens the door, took one look. Fortunately, we, even though we live out in the country, there are three EMTs who live on our street. And, I mean, within minutes, good. less than minutes, they were here because all their phones went off at the same time. And they just yeah. came down their personal cars, transported me to the hospital, you know. And I've got, I've got jokes about that because with comedy, there's a thing that tragedy plus time equals comedy. And the longer you do comedy, the the shorter the time between tragedy and comedy, and at 33 years of comedy, my comedy is in real time. Yeah. Nurse said, look, I no paperwork, Frank. This is when I'm back in the triage area. No paperwork, obviously, but I got to ask you one question. And I said, I'm married, but I like the way you think. <laughs> and then she goes, no, no, your full name is Frank Marshall King III. What do you like to be called? And I said, and I quote, Big Daddy. <laughs> okay, fast forward to the... Uh, angiogram because yeah. they want to see what's going on. I'm in the angiogram, the cath lab. The doctor and I are both looking at the screen. The massive heart attack is continuing, although I got some delauded, so I really couldn't care less. But we're both looking at the screen, and he goes, "Man, you drove a half mile, walked two miles. Uh, you walked a half mile and drove two miles having that heart attack." This is my favorite line, Brian, because he does not know my mental health history. Yeah, he goes, "Your will to live is off the charts." <sighs> It's all I could do not say to him, hey, um, Dr. Yeah, Gunner, why don't we sit here for 30 seconds and enjoy the irony of that phrase? Yeah. As we talked about, that day I wanted to live, Brian. Yeah. And obviously, because, you know, that's a long way to walk and drive with a massive, it was a massive heart attack. Uh, here's the, uh, by the way, here's the um, physical fitness element of that. The reason I survived the heart attack, my cardiologist believes, is if you put your heart under a load every day, then... Uh, you know, like on the elliptical or running or whatever, then um, what happens when you have an incident like that, all the other, the veins and arteries and whatever structure around the heart does something called vasodilate. Those, those parts, those veins and arteries expand as far as they possibly can to try to pump blood to the part of the heart that muscle that is dying because it's being starved for oxygen. Yeah. He said, look, if you've been sitting on your fanny for the last six months, you'd have been dead yeah. in the woods. There's no way you would have been. So that's that's you know that that's one of the benefits of this sort of holistic approach to my mental health is that part of it is physical health. Yeah. So I've got a, a good friend. He's either turning 62 or 63 tomorrow, and I could be wrong, and it could be 64. But either way, first half of his 60s, he had a, a very severe heart attack. Um, I think about three years ago, just no, well, like two years ago. Um, and he, he's been running for a few years now for several years, not anything major, but every day, pretty much he tries to get out and do, you know, mile, two miles, three miles, whatever it is, not a lot, but consistent. He's tall and he's thin, but totally occluded, like 90 something percent occluded Widowmaker. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh but the doctor Ooh. said, you know, and by the time he finally got to the hospital and they finally did something about it, because there, there's definitely some malpractice afoot in this. Um, oh, uh, he 
he shouldn't have still been alive, but for the running. That's the only reason why he was able to endure the amount of cardiac damage, the amount of occlusion, the amount of everything. Yeah. Um, Cause of the physical fitness and, and he's changed his life as a result of that. I thought he was a healthy guy before, but you know, he didn't eat great because like, well, you know, I run, so it's okay. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I went through the rehab after my heart attack. Cause I'm, I, believe you know doctors 12 weeks rehab which is one day a week for 12 weeks but when i got there and i did the they do a baseline yeah and, and i did the baseline she goes frank um I, I, I mean i'd love to see you for the next 11 weeks but i gotta tell you your 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 baseline is right where you should be at the end of this 12 weeks so and my wife said to me brian because she um i was having the heart attack paramedics are, are working on me iv they're giving me um nitroglycerin tablets. I'm, I'm knocking it back like Tic Tacs and it's not helping. And my wife picks up the phone and calls work because that's the kind of employee she is. Yeah. She was maybe a little late this morning <laughs> and uh, my husband's having a heart attack. <laughs> so her boss said to her, by the way, when she got to work, oh, Wendy, who does that? Who got to work on the same by- day? Yeah. Oh she went God. to work. She goes, who does that? Your husband's there. The paramedics are working on him. They're starting an IV, and you're calling in to say you might be a little late because he's having a heart attack. So I guess the reason I tell you the story, Brian, is I look so good after the heart attack. My wife goes, here's the deal, because they gave her the rest of the day off. Yeah. You can't come to my store, because she's a cashier <laughs> at the store, for 30 days, because nobody's going to believe when they yeah. see you yeah. <laughs> that you had a heart attack. <laughs> oh, man. You look too good. Yeah. Um, or you got to do some kind of makeup, like we'll we'll put yeah. like you know purple rings around your eyes and stuff. Pancakes, we look at them, sallow and yeah, yeah. So and and by the way, I, occasionally a friend of mine will go, "Let me get this straight. You're a, you're a, you know you're you're very careful about what you eat. You're an exercise freak, and you're suicidal. Why not just have eggs and bacon every morning and wait for nature to take its course?" Yeah. It is kind of odd that you'd be that much into health and also at times suicidal. But, you know, that's that's part of my therapy. That's to answer your question. Long answer is that's that sort of holistic approach. Meditation, medication, exercise, diet. Um, and that and control word that like because, yeah. again, that, you know, we talked about uh, the uh, the erratic or, or, or dangerous behavior that some people who are getting close to that point start to exhibit. But yep. Then they're giving up control because that's something else takes it instead of you doing it. That's not quite the same thing. And it's almost like, I mean, bodybuilding and, and this sort of fitness competition, that's that's about controlling your body. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that yeah. is. It's a fine, yeah. I mean, a diet is, I do 190 calories every two hours generally. Um, but who's somebody said, yeah. Yeah, somebody said to me, "How do you how do you pull that off? 190 calories every two hours?" I said, "You know, people say OCD like it's a bad thing." Yeah, it can be a superpower. It can be a superpower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, because uh, I mean, no, I, no, go ahead, right. go ahead. I get a little hungry in every now and then, and I, you know, sometimes I can go three or four. Sometimes I try to go three or four hours. See how how long I can go. Oh. Maybe take a little tablespoon of peanut butter or something, because a little fat in the middle of that can take the edge off. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a control thing. It's controlling what you're putting in your body, controlling what you're doing with your body, exercise wise. Yeah. So. Well, another word for that whole space is body manipulation. Oh, really? That's, yeah. Um, there's a female bodybuilder or former female bodybuilder at my job, and that's she's like the thing she loved about it was learning about the body manipulation, and it, part of that's the posing. 
you know, how do you move to get this thing or that thing to pop? But it's, yeah. it's all the control that, I mean, she has eating down to a science and training down to a science. And when she wasn't competing or training for a competition, she missed it. And I, I think it came down to that lack of control because it was just sort of things are just happening to her instead of she's, you know, she's directly controlling and manipulating the outcome. I would agree. I, I find it comforting. Um, you know, what I put, I'm, I'm very careful about what I put into my body and at, at what intervals and yeah. how much exercise. Yeah. I think it is about control. It's about, it's, I find it, like I said, comforting in a way. Um, people think it's a little strange, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, Frank, you're awesome. I'm, I'm really glad that we got to do this and, um, my pleasure. I'm still, I'm still going to be reeling a bit from the talk and then the video is coming out soon. So I'll just reel again, but I'm going to share it like crazy. Cause there's, there's probably 50 people who are waiting to actually see what I've been telling them about. Oh, uh, well, thank you. And I, I, I think I've even told some of them about your Palm pilot joke, which I'm probably, <laughs> they're probably too young to even know what I'm talking yeah. about. But, um, I thought that was great. Oh, thank you. Um, so I will, by the time this comes out, the TED Talk will be out. So I will link to that. And you've done a number of them and you're doing more of them. But where where's the best place for people to find out what's going on with you? And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people who actually, if they have events, they should be thinking about bringing you in to speak at them because there's a really powerful message that resonates to a lot more people than you may think it does. I My, my website is thementalhealthcomedian.com. And my Facebook page is The Mental Health Comedian. So, I mean, that's that's sort of my brand. I've got a young friend who's 22. He helped me establish that as a brand. That's good. And by the way, I checked out an incognito search on um, suicide prevention speakers, and I'm the third organic listing on page one, thanks to that young man. Well, that's very useful. Yeah, oh, man, I can't believe <laughs> I looked, I thought, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Lord. <laughs> we, yeah. All, we all need a 22-year-old. Yeah, it's very useful to do, to do. Yeah, somebody who's a native user of all those platforms, and so uh, and he, by the way, has, has a, a little mental illness as well. I think that's what attracted us to one another. Because when we started chatting, we had coffee as a networking event. We started chatting, and he doesn't usually tell anybody all the stuff about his. He's got an eidetic, eidetic. What's the word? Yeah, eidetic memory. Yeah, and his brain never shuts down. It's a syndrome where his brain never shuts down, and he's really bright. But, you know, some of his social skills are not, you know, mm -hmm. and so, but when once I told him I had depression and chronic suicidality, all of a sudden we're chatting away. And yeah. so it's, it's, I guess it's difficult for him to get close to people because of those issues. Sure. So, oh. um, I, I'm, I'm super thankful for getting to know you and for having you on here. And, um, my sincere hope is. Well, I don't hope that someone who's listening is fighting with exactly this, but if they are, I hope that this is that little bit of I'm not alone and maybe understanding the role that control plays in it and seeing that there's a path to uh, to come through things and there's help out there. Well, and if you'd like, I'll give you my cell phone number. They're welcome to call me. I don't I go to, when I go to bed, I turn it off. But if they call and leave a message, I'll call them first thing in the morning. All right. Um, that's up to you if you want to put that out there. Sure. But that's, it's, that's your choice. 858-405-5653. 858-405-5653. Yeah, and like I said, I've discovered the um, do not disturb button on my phone. So, <laughs> I, oh, man, I love that thing. I go to bed and I'm, you know.
Why didn't you pick up? Because I was asleep, you idiot. Because I said don't disturb. Exactly. Frank, do you remember the closing line? You, you want to help me do this? Today's a new day. Go out there and do it. Awesome. Thank you, Frank. Yeah, my pleasure. What powerful, powerful stuff this guy talks about. I honestly, I mean, it's uh, it's something I talk about regularly with people. I share this idea that, you know, if you if you feel like you're at the end of your rope in your current situation and your alternative path may lead you to the end of your rope, too, then do you actually have anything to lose? And the question is, can you get there without that risk of suicide? Can you get there without that risk of, I mean, ending everything? So, you know, Frank has that, he recognizes as a, as a tool in his arsenal. Um, you know, what if you don't have that? Well, the answer isn't to become suicidal so that you see that, you know, it's worth taking those risks because if everything doesn't work out, well, whatever, just end it anyway. It's to find the power within yourself to see that path as possibility, as worth taking without having to put yourself at risk. So really powerful, introspective, reflective, uh, just, yeah, it, it moves you, you know? So reflect on that. Think about it. Look at the times in your lives where you've chosen a path that you knew was miserable because you were afraid of what would happen if the alternative path didn't work out. I think that's worth all of us reflecting on. And sometimes maybe it's okay. Maybe it didn't matter. And sometimes maybe you were right. But a lot of times I think you end up losing out and maybe unnecessarily. So stick with that. And if you want to stick with this show, the best way to do it is to be subscribed to it. And that's whatever platform you use. You know, most people get their podcasts on iTunes, but Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play or Google Podcasts, whatever they're, they call it these days, I think it's Google Podcasts just the RSS feed, whatever you want, do a day podcast is available for you the way you want to get it. If you go to doadaypodcast.com at the bottom of every single show, uh, where the show notes and the, uh, the info on the show is, you'll see some links to different ways you can subscribe. There's a link right to the iTunes subscription, to the Google one, to the Spotify one, Stitcher. Um, I think Spotify's in there. Maybe it's not. But uh, anyway, you can find the Do A Day podcast everywhere. And if you subscribe, you just get the new content. Pretty much every Tuesday is when I'm releasing. But sometimes, you know, for a holiday, I may switch it around a little bit. Or uh, if one of my guests has some specific reason why a specific day matters, I may move it around slightly. But generally, Tuesday of every week, you will get some new inspiration. So be sure you don't miss it. Doadaypodcast.com. And uh, just go into any of the episodes and you'll see those subscribe links down below or search for the Do A Day podcast uh, in your favorite podcast app. Or you can search under my name if you don't find the Do A Day podcast uh, because I've been on so many shows where I talk about Do A Day. For some reason, those shows often come up. And when you search under my name, you think they would too. But when you search under my name, at least in iTunes, you get the Do A Day podcast right away. Um, but for, yeah, for some weird reason, you don't always get the do a day podcast right away. I don't understand it, but that's the way life goes. So with that, I will seriously ask everyone to think about what Frank talked about. Look at your lives, look at those decisions you're making and why you're making them and see if maybe a bit less risk aversion is in order. How can you tap into that so that you can actually go for your potential? I'll leave you with that. All right. 
go out and do it. Have those thoughts move your lives forward. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.